Over the past five years, center has been a revolving door for the Seahawks. Might things have been a bit different if they didn't make a blockbuster trade prior to the 2015 season? Rob Rang and I are going to be revisiting an infamous trade the Seahawks made with the New Orleans Saints on What If Wednesday. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Happy Wednesday to all of our listeners, and thanks as always for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're ready for our second installment of What If Wednesday, revisiting a big-time trade made by the Seahawks and Saints back in 2015. How different might have things been for both teams if that trade didn't go down prior to the 2015 season? And we're going to continue our 90-player countdown, looking at numbers 55 through 51. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks, We're a month away from the start of training camp when the Seahawks report on July 27th. Veterans and rookies coming at the same time, and there still has not been an agreement made between star receiver DK Metcalf and the franchise. So the clock is certainly ticking to get that extension done before the start of camp. And I guess you could look at this on both sides of the coin, Rob. You could look at it as a good thing or a bad thing, in a sense. Terry McLaurin of the Washington Commanders being the latest receiver to get a massive extension yesterday, around $23 million per year. That's less than some of the other big names that have signed this offseason, but it's another receiver off the board and potentially another guy that can push DK Metcalf's price tag up four weeks before the start of camp. Yeah, I don't know that it actually is going to make that much impact with, with Seattle's negotiations with DK Metcalf Corbin, just because of the fact that with all due respect to Terry McLaurin, uh, a terrific football player, but at the same time, statistically, uh, in terms of the, the physical ability and upside, uh, and, and in terms of his importance to the team, uh, in terms of the durability, on all of those factors, DK Metcalf is superior than Terry McLaurin. And, and so I, I think that the, the fact is, you said that this is a three-year deal um, worth about $23 million, came out basically three-year $70 million deal. I think at minimum, we're talking about three-year seventy-five for for DK Metcalf, and, and and quite possibly higher than that. I think that it's very possible that we're going to see DK Metcalf wind up signing a deal that's going to be either the highest of any receiver in history of NFL or very very close to that uh, in, in terms of the guaranteed dollars, in terms of the average per per year. I mean, there's so many different ways in terms of the just overall amount of money. Um, I think that Metcalf is going to be looking for those kind of numbers. I think that he deserves those kind of numbers. At the same time, how willing is Seattle to to, to go that that way when you have the questions that you have a quarterback? Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it makes all the sense in the world in terms of what a talent DK Metcalf is. But on the flip side of that coin, if you allocate that many dollars to a wide receiver and you don't have a for sure thing at the quarterback position, that is that a waste of the resources. 
And so that's why I think that the Seahawks are kind of internally having that conversation right now. While there is some buzz out there as far as the, the trade conversations and all that, just because I think that the Seattle is, again, weighing that. And I think ultimately they will wind up signing Metcalf to a long-term, very expensive contract. Yeah, I'm still in the same mindset, too. I expect this deal was going to get done before training camp starts or very early in training camp, kind of like what Jamal Adams' contract was last year. There's been a couple other instances, too, where Seattle has had a player sit out a day or two of practice, and then they've gotten their big money extension. I think they're going to get this done. But fans, and you can understand why they feel this way, there's a lot of fans out there that are wondering – did the Seahawks make a mistake not getting this extension done earlier with all of the contracts that have been signed? I would tend to agree with you on McLaurin. I think he's a great player, but I don't think DK Metcalf is going to be looking for $23 million a year. I think he's going to be looking for significantly more than that, and I think he should be based on the fact that his numbers are significantly better across the board. He had almost as many touchdowns last year as McLaurin has his entire career. So – to me, statistically, they're not close. And Metcalf is such a unicorn compared to most of the receivers in the league. So I think you look at all the contracts that have been handed out, with McLaurin being the latest. I would tend to agree with you. That is not one that I think is going to have much bearing on DK Metcalf's market price. To me, the two contracts to look at, look at I think Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams, Seattle's not going to pay that kind of money to Metcalf. And I don't think he has proven himself to be that elite top one or two receiver like those two have for several years running. But Rob, those two deals that Cooper Cup and A.J. Brown signed, to me, those are the ones to watch because Cooper Cup, three years, $80.1 million, a little over $26 million per year on that extension. A.J. Brown, the former college teammate of Metcalf, $25 million exactly per year on a four-year $100 million deal. That, to me, looks like the sweet spot when we are talking about what DK Metcalf should make on a long-term contract between 25 and 26 million. I wouldn't be throwing him Devonte Adams, Tyree Hill type money, but I think he has certainly earned between that AJ Brown and Cooper cup deal. I mean, Cooper cup, that was a bargain at 26 million. But to me, that is the hot spot where you offer around that amount of money per year between 60 and 70 million guaranteed. That's what you're going to have to pay. That is the market for these top receivers there's going to have to be a large chunk of this contract that is guaranteed. And given the fact that he's one of only five receivers ever in his first three years to have over 3,100 receiving yards and have over 28 touchdowns and produce over 200 receptions, Jerry Rice and Randy Moss are two of the others. You add in that fact, he has earned this money. And I think the Seahawks will pay it to him. This is just going to be, it's going to be a tough one to swallow for John Schneider, but that's the market price now for elite receivers. I expect it to get done, but it is going to be at least in that $25, $26 million range, and maybe it ends up being a little bit more just because of how crazy this market has surged this offseason. Yeah, but it was somewhat predictable. I mean, we we knew that, uh, you know, of course, that the, the the way that the contracts were, were being situated with uh, the NFL and with, uh, you know, all of the different outlets in terms of televising games that the TV contracts were going to be enormous. There was going to be a big jump. Um, obviously as we're coming out of the pandemic and, and certainly you have the additional revenue of fans in the stands again, then that was going to change things as well. Um, you know, I, to me, the, the conversation really comes back to should Seattle have extended Metcalf earlier? And I think that you can always have that hindsight kind of question. I mean, that's what we're going to be having that, that conversation here in just a moment with our what if Wednesday series, uh, you know, but 
I, I really think that when it's all said and done, Seattle, again, will come to an agreement with DK Metcalf because he is a unicorn, because he is an exceptional player. And Seattle does have the salary cap flexibility uh, to, to be able to withstand a, a big-time contract for him. And he has done everything that they could have asked for in, in terms of just his work ethic and his commitment to the club. So I, that's why I expect, ultimately, that this will be a, a case of Seattle reunite with DK Metcalf rather than trading him away the way that we've seen so many of the other high-profile receivers uh, get moved this offseason. I'm glad you pointed out the inflated TV contracts because a lot of fans have been pointing out that's so much money for receiver. It's going to be a huge chunk of our salary cap. It will be, but a year or two from now, this money isn't going to look so bad because of those TV deals. That's That salary cap is just going to keep jumping the next couple of years. And also on the front of whether or not Seattle should have signed him earlier, it takes two to tango. DK Metcalf has to be willing to sign the contract. Seattle may have had an offer already out to him. In fact, I'd be surprised if they haven't had multiple offers to him trying to get this done. But Metcalf's probably been sitting back, especially with Debo Samuel still trying to get a new contract and potentially get traded out of San Francisco. There's gamesmanship going on here. So Metcalf may not be willing to sign that contract until he is seen what everybody else is going to get so that he can truly assess what his market value is. And so far he's had seven or eight big receiver extensions happen in front of him. The Seahawks are hoping that he can become number nine, but Debo Samuel is hanging over this. And so again, there's some factors to consider here. I do think that this deal gets done before training camp or at maximum the first couple days of camp. It's going to be a big deal, a ton of money that he has earned, but Seattle's got to get this done. So we'll see what happens timeline-wise, but you know both sides are motivated to get this extension done. When we come back for our second quarter, it's What If Wednesday. Last week we looked at Thomas Rawls back in 2015. We're staying in the same time zone when the Seahawks pulled off a blockbuster trade with the Saints, what if the two teams wouldn't have signed off on that trade? Might things have played out a bit differently for both squads? We're going to revisit on our latest What If Wednesday here in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing number of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You can avoid this because you have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. Save time and money using Rock Auto. Why choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Rock Auto is a family business that serves do-it-yourselfers. They've been doing it for over 20 years. And their prices are reliably low for every customer. They've got everything you could need, whether it's brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. Go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto parts needs. Visit rockauto.com right now and see all their parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on in their How'd You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Wednesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We're almost into the month of July and one of our favorite segments to dish out here in the dark days of the off season. What if Wednesday, we kicked it off last week, looking at Thomas Rawls, 
how different would things have been if the rookie running back wouldn't have broken his ankle late in the 2015 season? And we're actually going to stay in that same time period for our second What If Wednesday here. And this is one that a number of our listeners have brought up over the past several years. It's really been a big discussion point for the 12s out there. And that's how different things might have looked if the Seahawks would not have traded with the Saints to acquire tight end Jimmy Graham and in exchange sent away their longtime starting setter, Max Unger. And Rob, I do think that this is one that is really a tasty discussion to look back upon because Jimmy Graham was a really good player for the Seahawks. And at the same time, you do have to wonder if the trajectory for the franchise might have been a bit better if they wouldn't have made this deal. Yeah, it, it's a it, it's one of the fascinating ones. Uh, when we're starting this series, this this what if series, I, I think that there there's so many uh, you know kind of topics that we can discuss. You know, what if the Seahawks had chosen to run the ball at the goal line? And that is actually I mentioned that because that is what had happened just a couple of months before Seattle makes the decision to trade for Jimmy Graham. Um, they're getting rid of Max Unger. They're you know they're they're reeling from that Super Bowl loss, but they still want to be very aggressive um they, they make this trade and as you said statistically seattle won this or won this trade uh in terms of pro bowls jimmy graham had more of them than max unger did the seahawks went to the the pro bowl or excuse me to the playoffs each year uh that they had jimmy graham he left seattle as the team's all-time leader in receptions receiving yards receiving touchdowns from a tight end position but at the same time, obviously, he did not bring the physicality that Seattle had been known for. Um, center became a, a dark spot for the, the Seahawks for, for so long after Max Hunger was peddled away. Um, I think you look at uh, what Seattle was able to do in the draft uh, that year besides uh, making this move for the, the you know, swap in the veterans made the selection of uh you know frank clark which of course was you know hotly debated at the time but frank clark has turned out to be a terrific football player with the selection that they that they receive uh as part of the jimmy graham deal um a fourth round pick they they use that to move up to get tyler lockett so when people are critical of john schneider and pete carroll for for this particular trade corbin i i kind of bristle at that i i think i applaud them they recognize that they had obviously won a super bowl a couple of years before lost the next one but this was their time to swing for the fences and they were absolutely trying to do so um and in a lot of ways it was successful it just didn't result in them winning a ring and jimmy graham playing with the kind of finesse style in which he played at times the the inconsistency as a receiver in which he struggled with at times i, I think that it, it kind of has left a dark or, or a, a poor taste in a lot of Seahawks mouths. And I think it's unnecessary because it really was uh, a, in, in the case of the NFL, these are rare, but I thought that this was a trade that actually benefited both clubs in a lot of ways. See, that's not the juicy take that our listeners are hoping for here. Get somebody's got to be a clear yeah. winner, but listen, that is the truth. When we are looking at this trade, Jimmy Graham was not a slouch in Seattle. You, you referenced the numbers. I'll put them up here again for our YouTube listeners. 170 receptions, 2,048 yards, 18 touchdowns. Now, 10 of those came in his final season with the team. His first two years, it was a struggle to get the ball in the end zone. Russell Wilson struggled on those jump balls on fade routes that Drew Brees was so successful throwing to Graham when he was in New Orleans. And the systemic fit was never great. There's no denying that. 
that Jimmy Graham was never going to be an inline tight end, and yet the Seahawks tried to make that happen. You were putting a round peg into a square hole. It just wasn't working, and yet you still had those numbers. You still were able to get to the playoffs for three years. Graham came back from a grueling injury, tearing his patellar tendon, and came back and had a really solid season, at least in the touchdown department, even with him and Wilson not necessarily always connecting. So I don't think that it's fair to go after John Schneider for wanting to bring in a talent like Jimmy Graham, but you do have to wonder about the process after the deal was made and how they tried to fit him into the offense and not maximizing his strengths. I think that that is a fair argument to make, and I think that falls more on the coaching staff than what it does the front office. I think John Schneider had one vision, and I think the vision the coaches had for him was a bit different, and it didn't always work out. You didn't always maximize on Graham's explosive talent as a receiving tight end. On the flip side, Max Unger had had some injuries. He was a player that had been banged up the couple years before this trade was made. So you can kind of understand why Schneider was looking to make that deal while he still had value. But at the same time, it kind of backfired from that sense because you had Drew Nowak, you had Patrick Lewis. They, they were playing musical chairs at one of the most important positions on offense, and their offensive line as a whole paid for that. Justin Britt eventually became a mid-level starter, and they found a little bit of stability there. But it took some time, and that really hurt them during that 2015 season when they were trying to get that offensive line gelling with a new center. Noack didn't work out. Lewis was fine. He was a serviceable fill-in starter, was never going to be a long-term guy, but that put them in a really tough spot in the offensive line. But I'm glad you mentioned the locket aspect of this because I think when you're looking at this trade in totality, that absolutely has to be part of it. You were able to trade up and get a receiver that has been one of the best in the NFL for, for the last five or six years. Outstanding value in a third round packaging four picks to move up to get him. You wouldn't have done that without one of those picks being the trade you got in this. So again, I think both teams made it out quite well. You can make arguments that the Saints missed Graham. They missed having that extra dynamic receiving weapon for Drew Brees, and that might have been what kept them from winning a Super Bowl. Seattle not having Max Unger probably is what kept them from getting to a Super Bowl because the offensive line was an Achilles heel. So both teams, to an extent, they took wins and they took losses on this trade. And I know that that's not what listeners want to hear. They want a spicy take, but that's the reality. Both teams made out well, and yet they didn't. And I think that's the way you have to look at it. Yeah, there, there was both. Both teams went for it, which I applaud. Uh, you know, G, the the GMs in in both clubs. Uh, you know, obviously Schneider and Mickey Loomis for the Saints as well. But again, both going for it. But um, obviously, it didn't result in uh, you know hoisting the Lombardi Trophy, and that's obviously the ultimate goal. But one thing again. Corbin, we kind of talked about how a lot of Seahawks fans, you know, kind of criticize this trade. They criticize Schneider for a lot of the moves. I'm just going to quickly mention the, the players that were selected in the late portion of the first round that year. And I want Seahawks fans to kind of listen to this and imagine if Seattle would have had basically any of these players. I'm going to mention 12 guys from that went from 20 to 32, and there was a total of two 
Pro Bowl visits uh, by any of, of these players. And so that's the thing. When, when Seattle does make these trade backs or trade for veterans to get rid of those late first round picks, and they say, you know, those, those late first round picks are not exactly guarantees, that's what I'm trying to illustrate here. So anyways, here are those names. Nelson Aguilar, the wide receiver, went to the Eagles. Cedric Abway, offensive lineman, went to the Bengals. Bud Dupree to the Steelers. Uh, Shane Ray to the Broncos. DJ Humphreys, the offensive tackle, one of the Pro Bowlers, one time with Arizona uh, at number 24 overall. UW's Shaq Thompson going to Carolina Panthers. Good football player. Rashad Perriman, receiver for Baltimore at 26. Byron Jones, defensive back. Cowboys at 27. Also went to one Pro Bowl. Um, and then you have Lakin Tomlinson, the offensive lineman with Detroit, Philip Dorsett, receivers to the Colts, Demarius Randall, defensive back to the Packers, Stephon Anthony to the New Orleans Saints, number 31 overall. Talk about Anthony a little bit more in a second. And then the defensive tackle, Malcolm Brown, uh, from Texas to New England Patriots to wrap up the 2015 first round of the draft. Now, quickly going back to Stephon Anthony, and then so that was the, the player that the New Orleans Saints selected with that first round pick that they got as part of Seattle's deal. Anthony started all 16 games of his rookie season, Corbin, as you probably know, but he only started a couple of games and certainly was not productive at all over his next four years. We bounced around the NFL a little bit and um, wound up having a pretty nondescript NFL career. So again, I think if we're just like we have to kind of give Seattle some credit for some of the selections that they made, uh, you know, with, with the rest of their draft picks. If we're really going to look at this uh, trade from both perspectives, I think it's mentioned it's, it's worth mentioning that New Orleans did not get the bang for its buck it, with the first round selection that they received as part of Seattle's compensation to acquire Grant. Yeah, I think that the way that you just sum summarized it is really what I was saying is that there were certainly some positives for both teams out of this because Jimmy Graham was very productive as a receiver. He's the best receiver in Seahawks history in all of those major categories for tight ends. And the Saints got four great years from Max Unger anchoring their offensive line, but they didn't have value with that first round selection that they made. The Seahawks actually were able to use that fourth round pick to go get Tyler Lockett. So I think you can make the argument that Seattle probably won this trade. If you had to have, if you had a, you know, if you had somebody up threatening you, like, Hey, you have to pick one or the other. I would probably say Seattle just because of that Lockett thing to me, that's what tips it over. Neither team won a Super Bowl. neither team. I mean, the saints made a little deeper runs in the postseason what the Seahawks did, but I mean, in the end, Neither one of them got a Lombardi trophy. So I think they both went for it. There were some positives with the player they brought in, but they also had to deal with the consequences of trying to replace the player that they traded away. And I think it ended up costing both teams. So it ended up being to an extent a wash. And you mentioned a few of the other names there. How ironic is it Seattle's had Philip Dorsett and Demarius Randall on their team signed on basically veteran minimum contracts. And they were first round picks that were right in that same area that the Saints picked Anthony. So again, these picks are never guaranteed. And a lot of times those end of first round picks don't pan out. Seattle said, let's go get the proven guy. Let's make this swap. Graham did a lot of really good things. There's some fans that don't necessarily appreciate what he did in Seattle because it wasn't a great fit. Don't blame him for that. In the end, he had a pretty solid three years with the team. And, you know, you look back on it, should they have chosen not to make this trade? Yeah, maybe they end up getting back to a Super Bowl if they do so, but there's no guarantee, especially if you can't get a guy like Tyler Lockett by trading up. Maybe that doesn't happen. So there's always hindsight when we look back at these things, but certainly that is a fascinating discussion looking back at the Seahawks' peak years 
whether or not they should have made that trade. It's debatable still to this day here in 2022. We're going to continue our 90-player countdown here in a few moments with numbers 55 through 51. This episode of Locked on Seahawks is brought to you by BetOnline.net. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, league reviews, news, and more, including Major League Baseball. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sporting and wagering information, whether it's live betting, esports, or scores. And BetOnline.net remains the best spot for all of your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. It's the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite sports, whether it's MMA, boxing, or golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host Rob Rang. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It's time to continue our 90-player countdown. We're almost to the midway point now, Rob. Numbers 55 through 51. And we're going to start off with my new favorite name on the entire Seahawks roster. Coming in at number 55, previously played four seasons for the Chicago Bears, Last year under Sean Desai as the defensive coordinator, linebacker jo- Joel E.A. Booneyway. Man, I messed up his first name, which is the easy one here. Joel E.A. Booneyway coming to the Seahawks as a free agent on a one-year deal. And Rob, this guy hasn't had many opportunities to play on defense to this point after being a day three selection for the Bears a few years ago. He's carved out a role in Chicago as one of their key special teams players, though, And at around 235 pounds, he's a really athletic linebacker that has shown some ability in preseason games to be able to pursue uh, runners and bring them down, can play a little bit of coverage. So maybe this is an opportunity for him that he didn't have in Chicago, particularly with some of the injuries Seattle has at linebacker. Maybe he can be a bit more of a threat to get some snaps on defense here than he was in Chicago. At minimum, you added another really good athletic special teams player to the equation. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is I'm excited about how he could fit in. And uh, you, you mentioned the fact that he has the familiarity with Sean Desai in Chicago um, and, and the fact that Desai now being here in Seattle and that played a role. And Iwe Bounye landing with the Seahawks, I think that that um, bodes very well. Um, the, the the fact that Seattle has the questions at the linebacker position right now, um, you know, and, and then you touched upon the athletic ability. Um, 6'1", 235 pounds running in the four sixes. 35 inch vertical jump. I mean, that is explosive. Uh, you know, this is a guy that, um, you know, played his college ball at the small school level at Western Kentucky for the Hilltoppers. Um, but then when he put up that kind of, of workout, uh, really caught some attention. You mentioned that he was a day three pick. I mean, it was an early day three pick. The, the, the Bears made him the 15th selection of the fourth round. Um, you know, and, and so this is kind of one of those guys who I think really could flourish if, if given an opportunity for, for meaningful minutes, but at minimum. As you mentioned, the special teams aspect of it, uh, you know, at the mini camp, I had a conversation with with some of the Seattle's guys and they said Iwe Bounye is absolutely somebody that you should be learning his name because you're going to be hearing it a lot because he's a good player. Um, and I, I think that it's not just uh, Desai who is going to be interested in him. It's going to be Larry Izzo, the special teams coordinator, because, again, with, with this type of athletic ability and experience and he's a, a, kind of a long rangey active guy, I think that special teams could be a, an area which he could really excel. And I think he's a player to watch because of the situation next to Jordan Brooks. Everybody presumes that Cody Barton is going to be able to handle 
being a full-time starter. But until we see him go out there and do it, there's always the chance that maybe things don't work out as planned. And with Sean Desai being on the staff, knowing EA Bunyue really well from their time together in Chicago, if that happens, I could see down the road that they decide to give this kid a chance because he's still a very young player. You mentioned the athletic traits that he brings to the equation. I don't know that's going to happen, but I expect that he's going to be on this roster because of his special teams value, his familiarity with Desai, and just the fact that there seems to be some untapped potential there that the Bears were not able to unlock, in part because there just weren't opportunities there for him. At number 54, one of our rookies coming in in the 2022 class on the outside, the Seahawks picked two receivers. We've already covered Dariq Young. Now we're going to look at Bo Melton coming out of Rutgers and We've had a chance, Rob, to talk extensively about Melton's college career. The numbers don't pop off the charts. Had never had more than 700 receiving yards in a season. But if you go back and watch Rutgers, you'll understand why. And this is not knocking the program. I think Greg Schiano is rebuilding that program. I think that it is a program that is trending in the right direction. They've been able to get some really good recruits the last couple of years, but they have not had a good quarterback situation. And when you don't have a good quarterback situation, it's really difficult to stand out as a receiver. And Melton was the victim of those circumstances much of the time that he was playing there for the Scarlet Knights. So now he's going to come to the NFL with his 4-3-4 speed, which is legit 4-3-4 speed. You watch the tape, you can see it. Played well in Mobile, has shown that he can return kicks, has to do a little better job catching those kicks, but has shown he's got the ability to do that. Could be an impact player as a gunner, too. There's a lot of possibilities for Melton with that speed. The fact he's a player that can move around on offense and can play special teams, there's plenty of intrigue with him. As long as he's healthy, he did miss most of OTAs, but I would think he's going to be okay for the start of training camp and have a chance to carve out a role in a deep receiving core for the Seahawks. Yeah, I just think Bo Melton's a good football player. Um, you know, he is the kind of guy that, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, he did have some some problems with some drops at times over his career. I, I saw that in person at the Senior Bowl uh, a couple of times as well. And obviously that has got to be fixed. Um, but at the same time, you you see the power, uh, you see the quickness uh, that, that kind of reminds you a little bit of a Golden Tate. I believe uh, Jim Nagy made the comparison to former, uh, you know, Patriots standout Troy Brown. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about those, those shifty slot receivers return guys. Guys, but again, special teams performers that I think are kind of the glue guys at the back end of your roster that can surprise. Um, and, and so I, you know, we talked just yesterday about guys like Penny Hart. Um, and we know that the, the Seahawks are expecting to use D Eskridge a lot as well. Um, but those are the kind of players who I think are going to be competing for the same snaps at that slot position. Whoever winds up winning that spot, presumptively, presumably it's going to be Eskridge. But at the same time, I really really think that Melton um, can can also be a very productive player if he is given that opportunity. I'm excited about what he is able to to offer the Seahawks, getting him where they did late on, on day three when he was projected as a third or fourth round pick by every NFL scout that I had conversations with prior to the draft. I really think that Melton has a chance to be one of Seattle's biggest steals from a terrific draft class. And I think a lot of that had to do with A, the lack of production and B, just how deep this receiving class was. Yep. But you can get some really talented players in the late rounds when you're talking about a position that seems like annually has remarkable depth. That's just the game that we have now in football, especially with the proliferation of seven on seven at the high school and college level. 
there's just a ton of really good receivers coming in every year. And so you're going to have players like Melton that slip through the cracks and the Seahawks are hoping that he ends up being a home run seventh round selection at number 53, another rookie who's going to get to go against Bo Melton on the practice field. And I'm excited to see what that looks like, but going to be a little different look in terms of size. When we're talking Bo Melton versus Tariq Woolen, who's six foot four, he's every bit of six foot four having stood next to him. Yes, he is six foot four. You just don't see many corners that have that kind of size, that kind of length. And oh, by the way, he runs a 4.2640 and has a 40-plus inch vertical. We've talked about it time and time again, Rob. He truly is a freak. That term gets thrown around a lot, and I think sometimes it's wrongly used. But in this case, he is a freak. There's never been a corner like him that's come to the league from an athletic and size standpoint. You've got the questions about technique. He's only been playing corner for two years. But I think there's some reasons for cautious optimism that maybe this kid can develop faster than anticipated based on what we've already seen at OTAs and minicamp. Pete Carroll seems really fired up about him. Other players have been raving about him. You can only take so much away from May and June workouts. At the same time, there are some reasons to genuinely be optimistic that maybe this kid could play some snaps for you if you need to as a rookie on defense. But right now, I think the minimum, he's going to be a really good special teams player, and there's a ton of upside, maybe the highest ceiling of any draft pick that they made in this class if you can find a way to coach him up. And that's probably true, which is saying an awful lot. I mean, I really think that Boye Mafe and Ken Walker are going to walk into the NFL and be real difference makers. Um, but yeah, Tariq Woolen's uh, long-term upside is through the roof. I uh, use the term cautiously optimistic that, that Woolen might be able to you know, make some significant contributions as a rookie, maybe even being a starter. I, I would be surprised by that, Corbin. I, I just think he's too raw at this point. I think that he comes in and as a rookie, we're talking about a, a gunner and quite possibly possibly a very, very good one at that uh, on special teams. At the same time, I also think that when you see uh, Seattle go against the uh, you know teams that are, are using four and five receiver sets often, like the Arizona Cardinals, for example, and they have a big, tall receiver out on the perimeter, then then maybe it makes some sense to put Woolen out there and see what he can do. Dime um, packages, yep. Exactly. I mean, just because you the, the upside is through the roof, uh, as you mentioned. I mean – Looking at him, standing next to him at the mini camp. I mean, he physically he reminded me of Brandon Browner. I mean, he is just he's just so much. It's, Sherman is tall. Browner is even taller. Um, and and that's what Woolen is like. And then, as you said, the, the four two six speed is just un unbelievable. We've never seen this combination. So while cautiously optimistic, I think is a good way of saying expectations for this year. I think just like. Uh, you know, ecstatic uh, with the the hopes of what this player could be from a scouting perspective. Um, I just love the fit of Tariq Woolen, his athletic ability, his size, his potential ball skills as a former wide receiver in Pete Carroll's scheme with Sean Desai and Carl Scott working with him as well. I, I really think with an improved pass rush, I expect the Seattle is going to have. I think Tariq Woolen could wind up becoming a superstar, but at the same time, he obviously has to earn it. Um, it it's just the physical traits that we're seeing at this point. He's going to have to prove that he's got it up here and up here the way that Richard Sherman's and Brennan Browner's, uh, you know, prove themselves to be in, in Seattle's system. Yeah, he's still very raw, certainly a project, but an exciting one at that. And we have themes in every single one of these lists. And I think it's fitting that we finish up here, number 52 and number 51, 
with a pair of specialists. And I want to say this for Tyler Ott coming in at number 52. You're not going to find a nicer guy on the Seahawks roster and a guy that cares about others off the field, does incredible work. But on the field, he does as well. And you know that because when was the last time, Rob, that we referenced Tyler Ott in a football game? Yep. I, I don't know that I ever have. And that is the perfect compliment for a long snapper because, unfortunately, it is a position where you're only going to get notoriety if you snap the ball over your punter's head or you snap it into the ground, just in wild errant snaps. If you're doing your job, nobody is going to notice. That is a good thing. And Tyler Ott is as good as anybody at not being noticed, which makes him one of the best long snappers out there. There's a reason they've had him for a number of years. He's been Mr. Consistency. And as long as he continues to do that, the Seahawks are going to have a spot on the roster for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's 30 years old. Uh, he's got kind of that the frame that you're kind of looking for in a, in a modern day uh, long snapper. I mean, obviously everybody wants big guys, but he's 6'3", 260, um, you know, good solid size. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, just the, the fact that, that Seattle did give him a, a long-term contract, even a four-year deal, that's pretty long by Seattle standards. I'm not so sure that DK Metcalf is going to get a four-year deal. But uh, as you said, I mean, it's just the consistency. Um, you know, it's been a long, long time since we've heard of any type of mistake from uh, Seattle. But there's a reason why he was a pro bowler. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen any, uh, any type of mistake from Tyler Ott. And, um, and so that's why I think that he deserves to be listed here. Here as among the top 53 players on Seattle's roster as we do this countdown. Whereas I might argue that he should be listed a spot ahead of the next player on our list, the quarterback, or the, excuse me, the, the field goal kicker uh, and, and uh, you know, the place kicker and kickoff specialist in Jason Myers. Excuse me, I guess it doesn't make him a specialist if he does both, but you get my point. At times last year, he was a kickoff specialist, Corbin, honestly, because he was missing field goals at a rapid pace considering how big of a con contract that he got so i i think that jason myers he was a player that i argued that seattle may have considered you investing a draft pick this year it was a terrific class of rookie kickers and jason myers missed an awful lot of kicks th this past season as i mentioned considering the fact that seattle was up against the salary cap edge i really thought that myers might have been a little hot in the collar a little bit um you know when it came to you know, some of the players that seattle might be considering letting go um, I, I think this is a big training camp for Jason Myers. Seattle has not made any type of, of moves or anything to suggest that he's going to have any real competition. But at the same time, uh, I, I do think that, that Myers is, must be better this upcoming season. Otherwise, I do think that this might be his last year in Seattle. Yeah, I think that they're – well, it, it's his last year under contract for one thing. So if he yeah. doesn't play well, doesn't get closer to what he kicked like in 2020s, the Seahawks are going to have to make a move there because you can't afford to have a lack of reliability, a kicker. But if you want some positive news, Seahawks fans, I'm going to say this. I'm superstitious. Rob, you've known this for a long time. I, I am captain superstition, and I'm always looking at stats, trying to figure out patterns. And Jason Myers has been one of those guys his entire career that he alternates good years. He is a Jekyll and Hyde kicker as much as any kicker in the NFL. In 2018, the Seahawks had him in training camp, and then they cut him in favor of Sebastian Janikowski. What's he do? He makes the Pro Bowl and was near perfect for the New York Jets. The Seahawks bring him back in 2019, and he endured some bumps, especially in the middle of the season, missed some key kicks in games against the Buccaneers and the Ravens, a couple other games he missed kicks. 
didn't really live up to the contract they gave him. Then he was flawless in 2020. And then last season took a big nosedive, was much closer to his 2019 self, missed some kicks, still struggled with some extra points that he missed. That's been one constant for him. He's always missed extra points, which I can't really understand why that's happened. But anyway, he has been at his best on even years. And it's 2022. It's an even number. He's at the end of his contract. So I'm going to use this term again. I'm cautiously optimistic based on history, (laughs) on past precedent, that Jason Myers is going to rediscover himself this year. And then I don't know if that means you resign him next year because then you're like, oh, crap, it's 2023. What are we going to get out of him? But you're hoping that that trend continues and, and you at least get one more strong season from him as your place kicker in 2022. Yeah. And I, and I think th- I'm happy that you mentioned his 2020 season, because obviously it was spectacular. Um, you know, just the accuracy, the, the depth, I mean, talk about uh, record breakers. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what Jason Myers was. So this past season was uh, disturbing, but as you said, the history is on Jason Myers side and hopefully on Seattle's side uh, as well. They're going to be hoping that this year they don't have to worry about Mr. Hyde and that Dr. Jekyll will show up to work to split the uprights. And if they can do that, that might salvage a few games this season. That's how important the kicker position is in the NFL and really all levels of football. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Thanks as always for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked on NFL podcast for your second listen. Our national NFL experts and insiders keep fans dialed in with the biggest stories and the latest news from around the league because an offseason doesn't equal a break in the action coming up on our thursday episode i'm going to be riding solo answering your questions in our weekly mailbag segment and i'm going to be picking out a handful of players that need to have big jumps this season for seattle to remain competitive in the nfc west looking forward to it you won't want to miss it thanks for listening in enjoy the rest of your wednesday go hawks